0: Welcome to the Eanes Parents United podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Silva. Join me for meaningful conversations and timely information about Eanes School District, its past, present, and where we all hope for the good of our children, its heading. Normally, we would have started this episode with a cold opening, which is an interesting little tidbit edited from one of our guests to uh, spark your interest to listen further. But this episode is different because we are going to be talking about library books. Now, we're not going to talk about library books that discuss race or CRT, being gay or transgender. I'm not going to wade into all of that in this episode. But instead... We are going to focus on a particular type of book, a type of content that every single parent, every adult, every decent human with compassion and kindness toward innocent young children, our babies, in the Eanes School District can unite. A topic that all of our leadership and every trustee of our board knows, in their heart of hearts, is the right thing to muster the courage to fix. I'm talking about pornography. Pornography in our school library books. Every adult knows what porn looks like and sounds like. It's really not debatable. As Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, Potter Stewart, once wrote, pornography is hard to define, but you know it when you see it. And I think all of us do as well. So moms and dads, right now in your school library, at every elementary school, both of our middle schools, and most certainly at Westlake High School, your child can easily access books laced with disgusting, vulgar, and insidious language, content, graphics, and storyline concepts that no parent would ever want their child reading. Content that no parent would want any child reading. Ironically, the same content words and phrases found in these books is summarily blocked by school internet filters they have in force right now. We have an entire mental health department, some 33 highly trained professionals focused and committed to keeping our children safe and mentally sound. Yet, our libraries maintain an easy-to-access archive of books that glorify violence toward women, stories that romanticize self-mutilation like cutting, or makes heroes out of young girls that suffer from bulimia and other terrible mental afflictions that no family and no child should ever have to face sadly graphic novels which are cartoon books that any age can understand depicting adults in at least a dozen sexual positions heterosexual and same-sex intercourse and sodomy doesn't matter along with illustrations demonstrating masturbation kind of like a i don't know like a kama sutra book for kids was attempted to be featured by our librarians under the guise of free speech until concerned parents Asked the administration to take a second look. And to their credit, our leadership did take a second look. And the book entitled It's Perfectly Normal was removed from the presentation and the event was converted into an opt out lesson, which parents could examine in advance. But folks, when a library lesson on free speech is converted to an opt out program for kids, there's nothing perfectly normal going on. You know, as always on this podcast, While my personal views may be obvious, it doesn't preclude me from remaining authentically curious, civil, and respectful about what other parents or leaders think that may not share my views. You know, for this episode, I had two guests lined up to voice their views on why all books should remain in the library because I really want to hear their opinion. Parents that I had personally witnessed speak publicly at board meetings over this last year. Both parents initially agreed but change their mind at the very last minute. I respect their decision, and the invitation remains open to them or anyone to come on a future episode and share your views. And so the show must go on. I've always got an open door here at the Eans Parents Unite podcast. However, as a slight twist on this very controversial topic of library books, I do have a parent that will talk about his independent research on what books are not in the library, books that should be in the library. And I think you'll find this particular segment enlightening and very thought-provoking. But before we meet our first guest, I thought it appropriate to warm up your ears, set the mood by sharing a partial book reading by a very brave parent named Jeff Ulrey. Mr. Ulrey and other parents have been reading these books month after month at board meetings. You know, for the one to three minutes that they are allowed to stand in front of the board and read, going back nearly one year, the humiliation and compromise to their dignity that they risk bringing this to light for all of us should not be understated or go unappreciated. And I will say, nor should the courage of parents standing up for books to remain in the libraries go unnoticed either. Before you slip into denial, about the authenticity of what you are about to hear, I can assure you that I did not cherry pick one book out of the 65,000 we have in our very diverse catalog as a publicity stunt. What you are about to hear can be found in some form or other in an untold number of books in our school libraries. Titles are being discovered by parents every week, it seems. Our leadership knows about these books. The librarians know about these books. Teachers know about these books and probably hope like hell a student never brings one into their classroom to discuss. And the school knows when your child is checking them out to read. And so I ask you, do you know? So fair warning, and I can't even believe I'm about ready to say this, you are about to hear content from a real Eanes ISD school library book. This selection contains mature language, and adult themes that should not be suitable for minors or young children.
1: Hey, Earl, I can't watch Alphaville today. Why the hell not? I'm sorry, man. I have to hang out with this girl from uh, this girl from synagogue. What? She's. Are you gonna eat her poop? Earl can be sort of profane sometimes. He's actually mellowed out a lot since the middle school days, believe it or not. Back in middle school, he would have asked this in a much more violent and horrible way. Hey Earl, yeah, I'm gonna eat her p-. Yeah? Yeah. Do you even know how to eat p-? Uh, Not really. Papa Gaines never sat you down and said, son, one day you're gonna have to eat the p-. No, but he did teach me how to eat a p- hole. I would teach you some p- eating technique, but it's a little complicated. Well, that's a shame i would need some diagrams and whatnot well tonight maybe you can draw some up for me son i don't have time for that i got like 20 over here that i need to eat is that right i'm on a deadline you've got 20 vaginas all lined up in a row what the no one's talking about vaginas greg what the is wrong with you man that's nasty
0: The excerpt you just heard was from a book named Me and Earl and the Dying Girl by Jesse Andrews. And you're probably thinking that a book uh, that demeans and objectifies young girls like this should not exist in our school library. Who would want their son to think it is normal to talk this way? And I would completely agree. Thankfully, there is a formal process to challenge books that parents who live in our district can use when they find material objectionable. If you want to find it, simply go to Eanes Book Challenge 2022 and you'll find a current list along with the formal EISD committee responses to all the books that have already been put forth and challenged. This book by Jesse Andrews, sadly I will inform you, was formally challenged by a parent in March of 22, and for the obvious reasons you just heard. And after review of the book of a committee made up of two principals, two teachers, two librarians, two parents, And two senior district administrators, that's 10 people, that must read the book in its entirety, they decided to return the book to the shelves at both the middle schools and the high schools back in May after ruling that the book, even though they acknowledged it was profane, quote, There are redeeming qualities around engagement, literary elements, diversity, and self-reflection and acceptance. Huh. So far... 135 books have been formally submitted for challenge by parents. The reason for challenge can vary greatly, but a majority of them cite pornographic, profane, and generally not being age-appropriate, strong adult themes or of no literary or educational value. Some challenges focus on gay, gender, or race insensitivities, but I'm not going to get in that on this episode again. I'm staying focused on pornographic content. So far, in the eight months... That books have been challenged, only 15 books have been reviewed, and only one has been removed from the library. One out of 15 over eight months. At this pace of about two books per month, on average, it will take approximately six years. The slow pace of adjudicating challenged books has discouraged many parents from even trying to protect their kids. It's like a filibuster of, so- of sorts. It's just, it's nuts. I mean, heck, you know, their middle school child will will have graduated high school by the time the challenge process is completed. To complicate this process further, last spring, the Board of Trustees, for whatever reason that still still remains a mystery to this day, decided to publicly publish the names of the parents who had the courage to stand up for their kids, right or wrong. This public humiliation invited scorn and hate-filled reprisals by other parents over social media and extinguished trust in, frankly, what is a private matter about books between parents, their children, and the school. As a result, all book challenges have stopped since May. To the credit of our new superintendent, Dr. Arnett, his administration has removed the names of the parents from the list, but the damage has already been done. Parents have lost confidence in the process and have lost faith in the board of trustees for their unforced error. And by the way, when a book is challenged, it remains on the shelves for your child to check out at any time they want and without your knowledge. I'm now joined by a fellow parent here in Westlake. His name is Will Franklin, and I thought I would bring him on. In the context of this library book discussion, we've spent a lot of time talking about what books we don't want in the library. But I thought we would talk about what books are not in the library. Mr. Franklin, he reached out to me when he knew I was doing a season two of the podcast and wrote this very nice email with a bunch of ideas on things that he thought would be interesting to be covered in the podcast. So first, Will, I want to thank you for being a fan I'll give you an autograph later. Maybe a super fan. <laughs> Maybe a super fan. <laughs> but I really appreciate your feedback and I reached out to you and I thought, wow, this is really a curious thing. For whatever reason um to do this research, you that you've done on your own, you have to be kind of a book nerd or something to want to get into this or just what what motivated you to want to do this research? What is it? Not no too much time on your hands or bored or what?
2: Yeah, you know, I I just have I've been following the debate, I guess you'd call it, the the controversy over the, the library books. And I've always taken a different take. It's that there are books not in the library that should be.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: even as a kid, I would go to the library as a high school kid and try to find you know, some book I had seen on TV that some politician had written or whatever it was. And it wasn't in there. It was never in there. It was the probably
0: one... because you didn't know the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> <laughs> Remember the cards? Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. I still don't
2: know the Yeah, Dewey I don't Decimal know them either. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> so you would look for books that were not in there. You just had kind of a, yeah, a
2: knack for that. And and I still have that. I still have huh. that at the public libraries. Sometimes I'll uh, I'll go look for the, the latest book, and it's just not there. And I, it gets so frustrated. And, and it, it all tends to be in one direction, kind of. Politically What's not speaking, yeah, I, and and so I, you know, I hate to make it about politics, but it does seem like they it's one kind of direction. Yeah. Uh,
0: there's a bunch of categories in in talking with you and learning from you. I thought I would I would take the listener. We would take the listener through a few categories. Uh, and again, this is this is your research. Uh, I've looked at it. It's pretty darn comprehensive. Uh, and everything we're going to talk about, we're going to provide or you're going to provide yeah. uh, to us and I can provide the school, or you can provide the school. I think, I think there will be curiosity. There should be curiosity on the, amongst the leadership and certainly amongst the librarians about this because I, I felt after talking to you that there was such a deficit in so many areas. It was kind of a shocker. So let's start with some really easy categories that really should not be debatable. Or or controversy at all. What did you find missing in the area of books that had merit for literary awards that sh- certainly should be in a library?
2: So there's there's a lot of literary awards. There's the Nobel Prize for Literature. There's the Newbery Medal. There's the Pulitzer Prize, Caldecott National Book Award. I mean, these are just big categories. Called the
0: Caldecott is picture books. That's
2: picture books for, yeah, kids. for kids. And yeah. and so each of these that I've just mentioned, uh, there's there's books that. Have been published that are not in our libraries. It's a little weird, I would say, to have 48 Nobel Prize for Literature not be in there. It, it's just a little peculiar. Why is that? And you know, some of them are foreign, I guess, and some, but but they're all in English or have English translations. So that's a little odd. You'd think that Nobel Prize for Literature would be in there,
0: right? and certainly at the high school level, yeah, because exactly. these are sophisticated readers. Yeah, yeah. so you know, 48 missing, 48
2: that I've found. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then there's there's books like the Hugo Book Awards, which is for sci fi books. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, a lot of my kids are boys and they tend to be more into that type of genre than maybe, you know, young adult romance, let's say. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of those missing. And and you're just like, why? Why are those missing? Is it? Because the people choosing the books don't like them, or like, what is it? What I, I don't understand. Why yeah. are those
0: not in there? Yeah, these these are easy picks. Myself, when I choose a book, if I don't get a reference from somebody, I will go to the you know New York bestsellers. Yeah. I will go to the Wall, Wall Street, exactly. and I'll go ah, and I'll pick it. These you are...
2: find the book list. You you go online, you Google what are the best sci-fi books, and then oh well, here's the Hugo winners. You know, and it's like oh, I should read those. Yeah. That's exactly what you do. Uh, there's also books um, written by Presidential Medal of Freedom recipients. And then there's even a category that I found of the T.R. Fehrenbach Award, which is a Texas sort of history Texas book award, including T.R. Fehrenbach. There's a couple books in the library by T.R. Fehrenbach, but he, he wrote, you know, dozens, and there's only a couple. And then almost none of the book award winners are in the library. So it's it's kind of like, we live in Texas. There's sort of a local flavor that should be
0: represented well, that's not there. The kids have a dedicated courses on Texas history. Why shouldn't there be some you of these books so. reinforcing these ideas? Okay. Can you name a few of the books on any of those lists that the listeners might go, oh, wow, that's a shocker. That's not there. That was a Nobel Prize winner. That was a Pulitzer winner.
2: Yeah. So, you know, you might think of something that kids might like, the Newberry Medal, 1940. It's pretty old, but it's Daniel Boone. I mean, that's kind of an interesting book.
0: Daniel right? Boone.
2: The Stone Diaries by Carol Shields, uh, Foreign Affairs by Alison Lurie, Elbow Room by James Allen McPherson. I mean, these are these are books that have sold well, they've done well, and they've won awards, and they're not
0: in there. And you're, you're kind of like, why is that? Why, mm-hmm. why not? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay, so... Uh, big holes in literary awards. You've got a nice big list for us to, to provide. Okay. We live in a community that's full of business leaders, full of entrepreneurs. I was one of those uh, as a young adult that was interested in business books. I've always been an entrepreneur myself. You found some pretty big holes in business books, especially with a school district that has a business incubator. And some of the smartest, brightest kids uh, in the country are here. What'd you find missing there?
2: Well, that's another one where you you say, what are the best business books? And you just ask the internet. And yeah. there's all these lists. There's yeah. tons of lists. And so it's easy to find these lists and then cross-reference with, you know, the Eans catalog. And it turns out that some very basic classics like how to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, or Start with Why, or Think and Grow Rich, or Zero to One by Peter Thiel, or uh, Grinding It Out by Ray Kroc, uh, Sam Walton's mm-hmm. autobiography. I mean, it, it just goes on and on. Uh, I, 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 it's, it gets boring just listing all the, the names of them, but there's tons of them. There's tons of these kind of classic business books yeah. that people drop, in, you know, they drop casual references mm-hmm. to. When they're on the golf course or whatever, they're just kind of in discussion. They say, "Oh, you know, like that's kind of like uh, that Sam Walton book, or that's good to great, or whatever." You know, oh, and, yeah. You know, there's certain
0: books that people just name, yeah. and you kind of have to be familiar yeah. with them. So, business books, we have holes. All right, so let's get into some of the um, kind of more controversial areas, and I I encourage the listeners to suspend their bias <laughs> <laughs> on this discussion. Uh, you objectively. Let's talk about political books. We have a yeah. lot of political heroes. Uh, we have a lot of political zeros. Uh, we have a lot of people in between, but they are political figures in America and in the state of Texas. What did you find when you looked at political books or looked for them?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, we have a two-party system, and they're roughly evenly split. We're, we're kind of divided down the middle. So you'd think that maybe there would be kind of an even balance of these books. Yeah. But what what you equity. do... Equity. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Let's have uh, equity <laughs> in our political books. So you do find books by out-of-state senators, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't find anything by say, Ted Cruz or John Cornyn or even Kay Bailey Hutchison or Phil Graham are previous senators here. You know, there's nothing by Rand Paul, Marco Rubio, Tom Cotton, Tim Scott, Mike Lee. You know, all of these have multiple Perry, books. Is there anything for Perry? Uh, nothing by by Rick Perry in, in the in the library. And Ann Richards? There's a couple of Ann Richards books. Uh, one's called, like, you know, Hero or something. You know, it has the hero title, yeah, something yeah. like that. It's so
0: She's a tough gal. She's yeah. a good, good governor for this time, um,
2: yeah. But, yeah, you know, you do have tons of Sonia Sotomayor, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, there's no truth without Ruth. You know, that type of book just mm-hmm. glowing with uh, praise at every level. A lot of them are, are board books. Um, but you don't have as much on the conservative justices. You have sort of like a perfunctory 100-page bio on Clarence Thomas. But it's kind of like, yeah, but he he wrote some books. Why are those not in there? Yeah, You have out-of-state legislators uh, including Nancy Pelosi or John Kerry, but you don't have, say, Newt Gingrich, which might be the analogous example. For yeah. you, know. you do have local politicians, or I guess you'd call them local, like Julian Castro or Irma Rangel or Barbara Jordan. Fine, that's great. Have them, whatever. But why not Rick Perry or Ron Paul or Charlie Wilson, who, by the way, was yeah, a Democrat. He total total hero Democrat Speaker of the House, yeah. Sam Rayburn, the buildings named after him out there. Uh-huh. Nothing on him. He was a huge Texas figure in politics. Why, why not? And I think it's because he doesn't serve kind of a modern narrative or something. I, I don't quite understand it.
0: Yeah. Um, you also taught me about some behind the scenes uh, monetization. Uh, how publishers and authors through publishers monetize uh, political endeavors by some folks. Now, this happens, to be fair, on the right and the left. Politician will run for president or run for something. Their publisher writes a book. Someone writes a book for them. Yeah, usually they don't write the book. They don't know. (laughs) They have ghostwriters that do it for them, for sure. And uh, they sell the book to send their message. And that's totally fine. That's the way politics runs. And people buy the books and proceeds from the books, you know, fund campaigns and things. But you shared with me a kind of a special kind of a backdoor thing that goes on in the channel of selling books into school libraries and public libraries with political figures. What is this? Well, I it, like you said, it happens on both
2: sides. But uh, Vice President Harris earned almost half a million dollars in 2021 on book royalties for one of her board books, mostly. And almost all of those sales were to publicly funded institutions like school libraries. And so you're kind of like, were people actually buying this book or was this...
0: Or was the book being bought?
2: It was being bought. And, you know, and it it happens on, like we said, on both sides. But I think based on my research, it tends to be one side that's in our library and not the other side.
0: Mm -hmm. So from a political standpoint, you know, today... We talk about inclusion. We talk about hearing all sides, um, you know, checking your bias at the door. Uh, And I agree with all that. I think those are good, um, positive behaviors. But it's not going both ways. In books, uh, politically speaking, you see, and and you're being objective here, it's a lot of one and not the other.
2: Yeah, I mean, I could give more examples. There's, There's tons on Al Gore, even Michael Dukakis. Um, there's, there's, you know, dozens of books about Hillary Clinton. There's one, I will say there's one book on Hillary Clinton that's not, uh, glowing and that's called the case against Hillary Clinton. So Mm -hmm. props to them for having one book, uh, that goes against that narrative, but they don't have anything even by, you know, Mitt Romney or Bob Dole or, you know, it's like, okay, if you're going to have Dukakis, got to have Dole or some, you know, it's like sort of the analogy, you you try to find these analogous type people and there's, it's one side's represented, one's not, they do have some, uh, John McCain titles in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, there's that there's, there's some Bush titles. Uh, but you know, one of the, one of the big ones, they have shrub by Molly Ivins, you know, uh, shrub instead of Bush, you know, it was all about how terrible he is, you know, that kind of thing.
0: Well, that's okay. I mean, you can have critical books about political figures.
2: I, yeah, I think it's important to, but it, it is just kind of funny that, you know, it tends to be pretty obvious. It goes yeah. one way. Yeah. Um, there's 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 tons of non-Texan left-wing activists in, in, that are political. Mm-hmm. Dolores Huerta, Cesar Chavez, Gloria Steinem. There's so many books about Gloria Steinem. Why? Margaret Sanger, Anita Sarkeesian, Jane Fonda, Greta Thunberg, Harvey Milk. I mean, you're just like Mother Jones, Che Guevara, Al Sharpton. George Stephanopoulos. You just you start naming these names. Yeah. There's so many of them, and there's you just won't find the analogous right of center figures. You just won't. Gotcha. They're just not there. Gotcha.
0: What's kind of your conclusion about your research, and what would be your guidance if we were so fortunate as to have the librarians listening or some of the leadership listening about what's not in the library? What would you say? What would be that guidance to the district? From your point of view.
2: Yeah, I think we we need more common sense, less in-your-face activism. I would also say not having a book in the school library is not the same as banning a book. It just isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also say focus on the classics and build the library back from scratch. Let's get back to the basics. Let's honestly assess whether a volume is you know, beneficial to kids in their future. And and by that, I mean, zoom out. Yeah, zoom out. I like that. And, and look, what is the purpose of public education? Is it to just kind of have anything in there and just hope, you know, hope for the best? Or is it to provide resources that help our kids get into college, get a good career later? Is it, does this book help us stay ahead of you know, China and India and Europe into the next century? Yeah. Does this book connect us to our history, our local community, you know, our state, yeah. our country, et cetera? Does it promote, you know, a well-ordered society of, you know, happy, unified, you know, people that are sort of productive and stuff, or is it kind of sowing chaos, division, resentment, yeah. you know, et cetera? Yeah. Um, you know, does, is this a book that, in 20 years could conceivably be on Jeopardy as a question. It, or is, it, <laughs> or just is it a fad? Yeah, yeah. Is, it, is this a, a, an obvious fad that is going to pass and it's just like, ah, what's the point yeah. of this?
0: Yeah, all right, so when you look, you also looked at the recent purchases going back to think of May of last year and you kind of ran it through your filter. What were the types of things you're seeing and what was missing? Just in a recent purchase, because if you if if your guidance was to be followed about zooming out and think reimagining the library, everyone likes to say reimagined. Let's reimagine this. How would that line up with the purchases they've just recently done this last May uh, to that vision? So imagine
2: you're building a music library and you want to you want to show the world like here's here's all the great music from from society from you know our culture, um, and you you discovered you don't have Mozart, but you're buying a bunch of Cardi B. I mean, you might say, okay, well, Cardi B's fine. She's popular
0: whatever. Yeah.
2: But you don't have Mozart. (laughs) And I think that's what's going on with the books. You don't
0: have Louis Armstrong. You don't have Beatles. You don't have uh,
2: the underpinnings of the founders. And so in May, you you could go on the Eanes uh, Library Catalog and you could look at the most recent books that had been added. And I was just reading the descriptions and every single one was some sort of social justice, just really hammering you over the head with it. I mean, it's just kind of like, really, the, uh, another one, two trans, whatever, civil, you know, I mean, let me just read read the description for you because it's, it's yeah, sure. uh, you know, it's, it's just, you're kind of like, what? Uh, two 17-year-old trans boys struggling to understand themselves and their love for each other are inspired by an online story about trans soldiers during the American Revolution. And you're just kind of like,
0: Well, here's the Jeopardy question: What is a book that will not be on Jeopardy?
2: (laughs) You know what? (laughs) But they're all like this. Yeah, it's it's, I've noticed this. There's so many, and this isn't like, I mean, this is just one of many where you're sort of like, "Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, that's Cardi B, that's not Mozart.
0: Yeah, yeah. There, there is certainly a, you know, the district has adopted. Uh, an approach to teaching children at a different level, and to be kind and sensitive, and you know, inclusive, and all these things, and those are that's ultimately good for society, uh, at, at some degree. But if we're not doing the others, you know, we're we're leaning, yeah, yeah we're leading kids astray. Well, we have limited that's not, resources well, that's, yeah, to that, buy have, these books too. That's a great point. We have limited resources. Why are we spending so much on this and not balancing it out? You know, right? if you're going to have that book, all right, then. You better have, you know, let's have a business book that comes yeah. around with it. You know, let's. There's no Milton
2: Friedman. There's no uh, Thomas Sowell. There's yeah. no, I mean, there's just, I could, I could just go, go through. It, it would get on. so boring listing the names, but yeah. there's just so many. It's yeah. so many.
0: Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a fair point. It's an equitable point. It's a reasonable point. And it's a different point uh, than what we've all been focusing on, which is what should not be in the library what should be in the library and Mr. Franklin will thank you for coming in and doing this research for us and telling us about this. And I look forward to getting the list and sharing it with the school. And, you know, maybe there's going to be some parents to step up and say, you know what, I got a hundred grand and we're going to go buy all these books That'd or, be great. you know, or something like that, because it is a big hole, no matter how you look at it. And I think it's wonderful that you were willing to do this for us and come on the podcast today.
2: Well, thanks, Aaron. I love the podcast and. Uh...
0: Long-time listener, first-time caller. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back. And now here is another book selection about a 16-year-old high school girl that is essentially being raped uh, during a three-way sexual encounter with a coach and a teacher on a particular afternoon. And just another warning, this is mature adult content that should not be suitable for your children to hear.
1: This book is called Fade by Lisa McMahon. It's available in Westlake High School and Hill Country Middle School. And then Coach Crater grabs her by the shoulders and turns her upward towards him. He plants a big wet kiss on her mouth and moves on. He's tripping as he walks to get more punch. She remembers that she doesn't think she likes him, but maybe that's not really true. It's so hard to decide what is true. Outside on the deck, it's dark. Mr. Wang follows her out there in his Calvin Klein briefs. Janie breathes in the cold air. She holds on tightly to the railing when Mr. Wang starts touching her. I'd smoke, she explains, but she doesn't see anyone smoking. And then Coach Crater comes out too. Mr. Wang is kissing her neck and Coach is telling her how hot she is and feeling her up. And he says something about bench pressing. Finally, she remembers why she hates him. And she remembers that she smelled smoke but no one is smoking. And then in her mind, while the two men kiss and touch her, is Miss Steuben, telling her something. Janie reels back against the deck's handrail, stumbling and grabs Coach's arms off her breast, wrenches his elbow around so he twirls and faces the other way and she kicks him hard in the kidneys. Mr. Wang is confused looking at Coach Crater, who is groaning and barely moving on the deck. Get me a fucking lighter that works or I'll beat the shit out of you too she says to Mr. Wang, and sinks to the deck, exhausted. When her hips start buzzing, she just figures it's one of those weird things that have been happening all night. Mr. Wang falls to the deck next to her and starts kissing her cleavage. She doesn't like that, she decides. He's in her way. Then, when Mr. Wang grabs her nipple in his mouth, she stabs him in the eyeballs. She learned that somewhere. She doesn't know where. Mr. Wang swings his fist wildly, crying out in pain. He catches her on the jaw. Her head flies back and hits the deck rail and she blacks out and the joint burns between her fingers. And after that,
0: this brings me to my closing argument against pornography in our school library books. I could have asked another parent to come on to talk about this, but the more I thought about it, I'm actually that guy. (laughs) And so first I'd like to Point to the Board of Trustees and our leadership and and ask, you know, I, I can't be sure why you don't gather the courage to fix this problem. You don't explain to any of us your reasoning for inaction or for your support of the status quo, and the silence has gone on for too long. I know all of you are decent people. In preparation for this episode and other episodes, I've looked across the serious depth of all of your resumes on our board. All of you are parents of current or former students. We even have a grandparent of current students. Some of you are scoutmasters, Sunday school teachers, girl scout leaders, and former school teachers right here in this district. One of you was even voted citizen of the year in Westlake. And so I ask, what are you doing? What or whom are you protecting? Why is this a hard decision? Are your lawyers giving you bad advice, as most do, or are you hoping politically that the state legislature will make a decision for you? You know, in my real life, when I'm not a podcast host, I'm a professional negotiator and I've done it for many years. I have a knack for shaping win-win outcomes in very complex situations. So here is an offer for you to consider. Because I'm not one to just complain, complain, complain without offering a solution. Here's what I propose. Number one, pull all the books that are being challenged and put them in a separate room or behind a um, a black curtain. You remember like video stores used to do? You pull everyone out and you pull them out without prejudice. Number two, you inform all parents that for the time being and out of respect for other parents or in the abundance of caution because there might be material that the library in the library that could harm their children and really this is no different than when someone has a peanut allergy every you know everything must go everyone must comply you need to let the parents know that all the books are available but they must approve their child checking out any of the books behind the curtain or in the designated challenged book section of every library and number 3 If you decide to keep the current review process intact the way it is, I would ask you to amend it to include that every parent that submits a book uh, to be challenged has to appear before the committee so they can express themselves more intimately. And actually, in a way, I think this would hold parents' feet to the fire a little bit, so to speak. This way, you can be sure that they are actually reading the books they submit, not just copy and pasting from a national list of bad books. And they can have this conversation in private. You know, respectfully, it takes a lot of time and coordination for a committee of 10 people to read every book and then meet. This process that I'm suggesting will ensure your time is being spent on only valid challenges and not overzealous parents. Number four, allow the committee members to explain to the parent their decision in person why the book should stay or not submitting a memo alone is very i don't know impersonal and feels very clinical it feels disrespectful because this is something that every parent that's challenging these books is very very passionate about and getting a memo back from a you know mystery committee you know it just feels weird you know at the end of the day this is a parent teacher level conference and i think it should be treated like that and the number 5 If the district wants a faster and more neutral process, I would recommend you retain a third party, an independent company like a, I don't know, Ernst & Young, Pricewaterhouse, an accounting firm, to read all of the books and compare to the Texas child protection from pornography policies that are out there. And I'm sure if you're thinking, well, we can't afford this, (laughs) there's plenty of consultants we spend money on that we probably shouldn't be spending money on, but suffice to say, we can't afford it now. I'm sure we can raise the money easily from parents, or maybe we can get a donation through EEF. I'm not sure. That would be quick and efficient and make it go smoothly. Such a change to the challenge book or book challenge process, I think, would satisfy all sides of this debate while focusing on the most important thing that right now I don't believe is happening, and that is protecting our kids. You know, I could spend another 10 minutes calling out all of our trustees one by one, but I'm not going to do that. Because to continue to do that, frankly, would be uncivil, and I'm not uncivil. I think all of them get my point, our point as parents, that if you're not willing to do the hard things that we have entrusted you to do, you're not leading. You know, we're not asking to ban books. We're simply asking to remove these pornographic books from our libraries. Surely, your librarians can find another book to teach the same lesson or values without being vulgar and pornographic. You know, banning a book, by definition, is an act taken by the state. My mother-in-law grew up in communist Czechoslovakia, and they had many books that were banned by the communists. She had to hide her books in the floorboards and walls of her rabbit and chicken coop out of fear... Of going to jail or facing hard labor if she was caught reading them. That is book banning. To those parents or librarians that call what I am asking for book banning, you're being intellectually dishonest and ridiculous. You can get whatever book you want at public libraries on Amazon any day of the week and two copies on Sunday. I mean, if you want your kid to read this crap, then you go right ahead. It's your child to deal with. And so finally, I thought I would end on a personal note as a father of two beautiful children. I believe some of my feelings will be shared by many other fathers in our community, and I hope that they are. Because honestly, I want a little more time with my kids before their innocence and purity is gone. I'm not naive. I know that eventually, sooner than I want, society, pop culture, and the internet, and time is going to take them away from me. Why can't I be the one to tell my daughter about the birds and the bees? Why does the school feel it should risk exposing my children to these books or allow her peers to read this smut that in turn they share with my daughter? Or worse yet, treat her like a piece of meat. She is so beautiful, so sweet, and my firstborn. Why can't you help me protect her for just a little bit longer? And for my son, I want him to respect, cherish, and worship girls and women. I don't want him to learn that he can dominate a girl because of his strength or that they are sexual objects to him that he can abuse, push around, or diminish. I would never think in a million years that such details would be available to him or his buddies in a school library, no less. I want more time with him to teach him what it means to be a man and not a punk. How important it is to put women on the highest rung in society and be thankful when any girl or woman gives him the time of day. If either my daughter or son wrote down some of the words in these books verbatim and handed it to another kid, texted it, emailed it, Instagrammed it, they would be disciplined firmly and potentially even suspended from school, sent to counselors. If I, huh, as a grown man, were to repeat any of this smut to a minor or show them these graphical pictures of sex, I would most certainly be arrested, accused as a pedophile with zero toleration. I might not ever get closer than a thousand feet of a public school for the rest of my life, yet, Yet, we ask librarians and teachers to handle these books, and then we protect them as having literary merit or under the umbrella of freedom of speech. Really? Really? How would that defense hold up for you, for me, for my kids, or your kids, if they express themselves in this way at school? Yes, authors have freedom to write. Publishers have freedom to publish. But books do not have a right to exist in a school library in defiance with parental rights and the simple laws of decency and respect for each other. Nobody would be harmed if these books never even existed. No child will miss graduating from their grade or high school in their absence. That, again, is intellectually dishonest and ridiculous. Is this current policy uniting our community? is it respectful? Do all of the parents feel a sense of belonging as a result? Does pornographic content empower students to be excellent in education? Does it stir their creativity or expand their individual talents? And are our leaders demonstrating empathy, gratitude, and compassion for our taxpaying and committed loving parents and their children by not making the right decision? I suggest you go back to our mission statement for the school and you ask yourself these questions. I want to thank you for listening to this episode. It's not easy to hear this stuff, especially about a school district we hold in such high esteem, a school district we love and we trust with our flesh and blood every day, a school district with a legacy of excellence and achievement. It wasn't easy making this episode, and I can assure you, I struggled with it mightily, as did the parents, producers, and sponsors that helped me stitch it together. Will our reputations be damaged? Will the community try to cancel me? Will I be called names, a book banner, a Nazi? Will my wife or family be retaliated against? Probably so, unfortunately. Well, deciding to publish this episode, frankly, was an easy decision because actually, as my mom and dad always told me, There's never a wrong time to do the right thing. Thanks for joining us on the Ian's Parents United podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ian's Kids First, ensuring that Ian's prioritizes our children's well-being, honors parental rights, and unites our incredible community. To learn more about our mission or to donate to our cause, please visit us at eanskids.com that's e-a-n-e-s kids.com if you would like more information about this podcast contact me directly or give us any feedback feel free to visit our website at eanspodcast.com or eanesparentsunite.com.